Good morning. Good morning. Um, I want to take just a moment just to acknowledge the privilege and the wonder that goes on in this body, in this place. I remember when David Campbell preached here the first time, and he was staying at our house, he and his wife, and after he preached the first time, he came back home, and we were talking about him, and we had watched David on video a number of times, and he just seemed to be more alive here, <laughs> and we kind of acknowledged that, and his wife said, oh yeah, that's not normal, and David said, there's something about this house, there's something about this house and the hunger that gives freedom to preach the word, and so I just want to say to you, this is beautiful, we have a privilege of it, and thank you for bringing the hunger into this room. We are in the third week of our Advent series. As a reminder, Advent simply means to come or arrival. And so for the Christian, it means that we are celebrating the manifestations, the arrival and the advent of Jesus, the coming, the arrival of Jesus. And we celebrate in three manifestations. The advent came in three manifestations. First, he came as the Logos, made flesh and present and to dwell with his creation. Second, he comes in the everyday newness of life given to all of us who believe in him and has, have his Holy Spirit. And third, we believe he is coming, the belief in the final act that will come when Jesus comes and returns the full reign of God to the earth. We are looking at the impact of Advent through testimony, through the testimony of three men who had unique and special relationships with Jesus. We're looking at Advent through testimonies, because our testimonies are an authentication, a personal authentication of what Jesus has done in my life, in your life, in the life of the disciples. And personal testimonies with what Jesus has done can never be taken from us. But we are also celebrating and or using Advent, looking at Advent through the testimony because of the sheer power of a testimony. The incredible power of a testimony. Many, many seekers, unbelievers, and even scoffers have been won to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the testimony of one of the saints. The unbeliever or the skeptic runs into a life that he cannot explain away or she cannot explain away except for any reason but that it must be true. And it is that testimony, that life lived out that wins one to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to give you an example of such a testimony. How many of you have ever heard of Chuck Colson? Oh, more than I thought, to be honest with you. I, I was a little afraid to use that because it ages me so much. Chuck Colson, President Richard Nixon and Watergate. Chuck Colson was a legal counsel of the President of the United States. And Chuck Colson was one cold-hearted dude. The quote for him in the political world was that Chuck Colson would sell his grandmother in order to win an election. He was cold, people feared him, and he was fierce. And he was a legal counsel of the, United, of the President of the United States when Watergate happened, the highest level of political scandal in our history. Chuck Colson had heard the gospel presented to him. He had heard about Jesus, and he had no time and no place in his life for such myths and fantasies. And he was a legal counsel when Watergate happened, the highest level of scandal in our political system. There were five men, five men who knew the truth about Watergate. All that had to happen was that those five had to hold ranks and hold their story tightly 
and no one would ever know the truth about Watergate. But they couldn't. In just a few weeks, the whole thing began to unravel, and the whole conspiracy was revealed. And Chuck Colson knew that he was going to be going to prison. And on the night that he knew that it had all fallen apart, he drove to a friend's house, a Christian friend, and he went into his library, and he said to this, I believe. I now believe the resurrection had to be true. And he said, I know it because I witnessed how five men could not keep a secret contained for even a few weeks, even though they weren't even threatened with life. There is no way that the disciples and Paul and all the people who testified to Jesus that they saw him alive would hold that lie, even though they were executed. There's only one explanation, Colson said. It must be true. See the power of testimony? And Colson gave his life to Christ that night, and he gave the rest of his days to serving King Jesus. He started prison fellowship. And he gave and he came to be one of the biggest proponents of Christianity of his generation, all because of the testimony of a life lived out for Jesus. That's the power of our testimony. And we're looking at Advent through the testimony of three who were uniquely close to Jesus. And we're looking very closely at their entire lives because as we see their impact, we understand greater the impact of Jesus coming to earth. Jesus, the advent of Jesus on the earth. The first week we looked at the testimony and the impact of the advent on the disciple John. Last week we looked at the impact of advent, the coming of Jesus on Peter. And one of my favorite comments shared last week after the message, it's actually a couple of you said this. You said, I fell in love with Peter all over again. That's so encouraging and seems right to me. Shouldn't we be intimately involved and know and honor these saints who have gone before us? When we look at their life stories, their testimonies become even more powerful and more real to us because they become more real to us. Too often I have read John and Peter and Paul and set them off and the other um, characters in the scriptures and I've set them off on on a place that's different than I am. And it comes in two different placements, and both of them that I suffer from are equally wrong. First, the assumption that the disciples were somehow special or different than we were. They were called for this. They were made for this. They had a special dispensation to be able to make this happen. It was easier for them to follow Jesus. But these men and women... They were just ordinary. They just acted extraordinary. Secondly, which the opposite polar assumption is that these men lived more desperate, completely different, more simple time. You see, their lives weren't as intricate as ours were. They weren't as complicated. So again, somehow it was easier for them to leave all they had and go and follow Jesus. And nothing could be further from the truth. 
And thinking about them as more special or more simple allows me to not be as challenged as I both could be and should be by the truth of the lives of these great men and women. These were ordinary men and women living ordinary men lives, and they made extraordinary choices. They, just like us, had lives, cultures, families, provision, communities that they had to leave in order to follow Jesus. Some of them had their own nuclear families, and they still left them. There was nothing easy about this. For them to leave all they had and follow Jesus is every bit as ridiculous and countercultural as it would be for us today. We should be in love with the saints, the men and women who paved the way for our faith and our faith story. We should know them intimately. Men and women who left everything without any promised outcome. Without any promised outcome, they made costly, sacrificial choices. And if they hadn't, we wouldn't know God like we know today. We need to honor these saints. I'm glad we we've, we've, uh, have a deeper love and an honor for Peter. And now we're going to grow in our love and honor for Paul. This week we'll look at the impact and the advent of Jesus on Paul. Please stand with me now, if you would, for the reading of the scriptures. I'm going to read Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. And Paul writes to the Philippians, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them all but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Lord, as we study this great saint who paved the way for us to know you better, would the truth sink deep in our hearts, empower us, and set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Just like we did with Peter, before we look at the testimony of Paul, we're going to take a deep dive into the story of Paul's life. And what a life. What a story he has. His story, like most of us, is a huge part of his testimony. In fact, Paul's life has the most, some of the most explicit and extreme change in his life than anybody else after he meets Jesus. When Jesus stands as before him, Paul makes some impossible changes. And Paul's life, again, and I've taken this out in the public, Paul's life becomes one of the most difficult, if not impossible, things for the world to explain away. I have yet to hear anybody, anybody, give a full and complete, sensible explanation for why a man's life would change as dramatically as Paul's did, apart from the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul's life in every way is a challenge to us because everywhere Paul went, things happened. The former Archbishop of Canterbury made this comment and when he observed his life versus Paul's life. He said this, everywhere the Apostle Paul went, there was either a riot or revival. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. And I thought, what a challenging 
Paul, everywhere he went, he was either welcomed as a father of the faith, a faithful follower of Jesus, a great teacher, or he was attacked as a heretic and a revolutionary. The only thing that didn't happen when Paul went somewhere was nothing. It just wasn't possible. Everywhere Paul went, something happened. It's hard for us to put ourselves in that time. Ideas that we are now very used to talking about, debating, and many of us believe are ideas that had never been put in the public realm before Paul. The resurrection of a body from the dead, never believed by any culture before this. Not in the way Paul was preaching it. The foolishness of the Roman gods, no one was stepping up publicly and taking that on. The brokenness of the Jewish law, grace, Holy Spirit, mercy, these were brand new to the world when Paul preached them. Almost everything he said was brand new. But almost every time he spoke, somebody was offended. It's just the truth of Paul's life. What brought Paul to this point? How did Paul get to this point? Paul's name before meeting Jesus was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus had everything going for him in terms of the world's eyes. Everything. Saul, was, Saul of Tarsus was very well educated. In fact, Saul of Tarsus studied under the most famous leader, teacher of the time. Paul later writes about his life as Saul in Acts 22.3. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today, all are today. Saul's studies of the scriptures began by the age of 14 and likely as early as the age 11. He studied those scriptures continuously until at least age 24. All through his life, this man from Tarsus was in continually impressing people everywhere he spoke because everywhere he spoke, he was able to speak in the specific dialect that he was speaking to. Everybody who knew Paul Acknowledged then and now, nobody denies this man's brilliance. Education, it's hard to imagine that anyone knew the scriptures better than Saul of Tarsus. Education meant influence and culture. Influence meant affluence. And Saul was a man of means and comfort before he met Jesus. Religious pedigree. Saul was a Pharisee, prominent religious party uh, in Judaism in the, the period called the Second Temple Period, which was Jesus' time. In fact, Paul writes of his own pedigree in Philippians 3, 4, 5, and 6. He writes this, Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel on the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, a Hebrew says to the law, a Pharisee. These statements are Paul saying of himself, Saul of Tarsus, in terms of religion, I check every box. In terms of holiness, I checked every box. In terms of piety and the way I lived my life, I checked every box. Saul of Tarsus was a man of prominence and influence before he met Jesus. 
But that, all those credentials were related to the Jewish community. But the Jews were still under the Roman rule. And this is where Paul's life is even more unique. Because not only was Paul all of that in the Jewish community, he was a Roman citizen. And not just a citizen, because some people had to buy their citizenship. Paul was born a Roman citizen, which even carried more honor. It's not exaggerating to say that when it came to the world of his time, Saul of Tarsus had it all, everything. And this is what makes him so hard to explain away. Until enter Messiah. Enter Messiah. Enter Jesus into the comfortable, secure, confident Saul of Tarsus. And Jesus comes on the scene and into the region and starts what this Saul of Tarsus, this educated religious leader, would have called, very likely, a Messiah fever. That's what he would have thought of Jesus at first. Here we go again. You see, claimings of being the Messiah were not new to this time or this region. Under Roman rule, there was at least 17, 18 proclaimed Messiahs that rose up. And they were all executed. And the movements all quickly faded away with the leader's death. When I first read and studied Saul of Tarsus, I thought he was an arrogant religious leader trying to protect the status quo so that he could keep his privilege and his leadership and his influence. But I no longer think that that is actually accurate. I think it's far more accurate to think of Saul of Tarsus in this way. Saul had been raised in the scriptures since he was 11 to 14 years old. He had read all of the scriptures and he knew all of the prophecies. He is confident in his understanding of the scriptures and he studied under the best teacher and he's brilliant. And he's zealous. Zealous for God. And Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is waiting for Messiah. He believes in Messiah. He knows Messiah is coming. And in fact, what angers him is these false messiahs keep popping up and they take Israel away. And in Paul's mind, he would have said, here we go again. And every time this happens, it delays the coming of real messiah. And this new Messiah, Jesus, he's just another example. He's just another distraction. And he needs to be stopped at any cost. Why? To protect Israel. Why? To protect God. That's where Saul of Tarsus was coming from. He wasn't arrogant or protecting his position. He was actually zealous for God and believing that he was preparing the way for true Messiah. Saul is present at the execution of Stephen, Acts 7, 58. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. But this was only the beginning for Saul of Tarsus, because he then asked for permission to go around to all the surrounding regions and round up all these followers of Jesus. And he began a journey that described in his own words in Act 22, 4 says, And I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. 
In Saul of Tarsus' own words, he says, the man says this, I ravaged the church, entering homes and dragging men and women out into prison, Acts 8. I breathed threats of murder against the disciples, Acts 9. He not only had them arrested, he punished them to be executed, and they were indeed even put to death, Acts 26. I led the persecution of the church of God. I led the persecution of the church of God. 1 Corinthians. Saul of Tarsus had men, women, and likely even children executed. All in the name of protecting God. All in the name of protecting Israel. All in the way of preparing the way for Messiah. And then, Advent. And then Jesus came to Saul of Tarsus. On the road to Damascus. He was on the road to follow, round up more followers. And Jesus speaks these words to Saul. Acts 9, 4 and 5. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul asks, who are you? And he hears, I am Jesus. And it is so difficult to imagine the impact of Saul of Tarsus hearing these words and meeting Messiah. And thankfully, we don't have to imagine it because Paul becomes such a prolific writer and proponent of the gospel that he tells exactly the impact of the advent, exactly we see in Paul's life what happened when Jesus met Paul. What changed? How was he changed? And there is only one answer, and it's completely accurate, and that is completely absolutely and fully completely changed in every way. The advent of Jesus changed every single aspect of Saul's life. Nothing about him in him or why he lived left untouched by encounter with the living Messiah. Even his name needed to be changed. And through God's mandate, Saul of Tarsus becomes who we know as Paul. Interestingly, one of the first things Paul does, one of the first things Paul does is he does not consult with men. He goes away for three years to spend time with God and to revisit the scriptures that he loved so well to find out what happened. In Galatians 1, 16 through 18, he says, I did not go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later was when I went up. And we don't have exactly what happened when Paul went away, but I believe he's referring to this maybe even in Ephesians 1, 17 when he said, you need wisdom and you need revelation. 
Because now Paul looked at the scriptures under the revelation of the Holy Spirit and he saw, oh my God, it was there the whole time. Jesus is everywhere. I just couldn't see it. But now I do. The scriptures were exactly the same. But in the light of Jesus, there was revelation that Paul couldn't see before. And this is a lesson for us too. We must study the scriptures under the revelation of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is alive. It is active. And it changes everything. When Paul comes back, he's unstoppable. He simply cannot not proclaim what he knew to be true. Jesus is the savior of the world. And Paul shouts it everywhere he goes, and nothing can stop him. And what is Paul's testimony? If Paul were here with us today, And we said, Paul, tell us what's most important. What do we need to know? And again, Paul is such a prolific writer that we don't have to guess what he would say to us. We have his letters to the churches, to bodies of believers all over the new world. (coughs) To believers that were especially dear to Paul. We even have letters Letters written right before he died to two of the most special, one a group called the Philippians, and second to Timothy, to a man he considered his son. And we need to remember that when Paul writes these letters, he's not sitting down writing, thinking that someday in 2022, in Antioch Church, these letters will be read, so I have to make them good. He thinks these are his last words to the people he loves most. It is a deathbed testimony. And that's how we must read these things. To the people you love the most in the world. And while Paul addresses many, many topics in his writing, his primary concern for his people and the people he loved, the people he gave his life for, his desire for all those he's loved, his prayers for all that he would leave behind in this world, it's all through his letters. In the letter to church, Paul prays that they would be filled with hope by the joy of believing in Jesus. In his first letter to Corinthians, Paul points away from himself and his preaching, and he points nothing. You should have nothing except Jesus. Nothing but the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing but the power of God. That's all you need. In the second letter to Corinthians, he prays where he loved and died would have three things. Again, grace of Jesus, love of God, fellowship with the Spirit. That makes it pretty clear. And in Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, recorded in Ephesians chapter 1, he prays, I want you to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you would know the hope and the calling of God in Christ Jesus, riches of all that God has for you in Jesus, the greatness of God's power towards all who believe in Jesus. Do you notice there's not a lot of specifics about the details of life? 
It just keeps pointing up. It just keeps pointing to the one he's met over and over and over again. Paul goes on and more. And he would leave them behind that includes us, that, that we would be strengthened with the power through his spirit, that Jesus would dwell in their hearts by faith, that they would know the love of Christ and be filled up with the fullness of God. There it is. Paul didn't leave any doubt. That's what he wants for us. And to the Colossians, Paul says, I pray that you know the knowledge of his will, spiritual wisdom, that you have understanding, and that you be strengthened by his power. Do you see what Paul is saying to us? Do you see the single focus and testimony and the desire of all who would listen to him? Paul walked away from every privilege, every comfort that life had to offer, every confidence, every pride, everything that he had, and it was afforded to him. And he said that Paul had denied everything in the world, and now he's 60 or 70 years old. He has been beaten. He has been shipwrecked. He's almost died from a snake bite. He's been in prison multiple times. He has been persecuted and stoned by his own people. He has been ridiculed by his fellow Roman citizens and now is in his final prison stay awaiting a death execution. And he has been a fool for Jesus, his words, not mine. And now even as he writes, and what does this most intimate writings reveal? What does he say to us? I want you to have even more of him. I want you to have what I received when I met him. And I want you to have even more of him. Because I still want more of him. Paul's recorded history makes this proclamation. I wish you one thing and one thing only. I wish for you the fullness of all that is available for you and everyone. In God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that is my message before I die. I want you to have the fullness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's listen to Paul himself. One of his last letters to the people he loved most in the world, the Philippians. A hand-delivered letter. And he writes this. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I count as loss. For the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that somehow comes through a law that is broken, but a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God that is given by faith. That we might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, so that I too might attain the resurrection of the dead. Oh, brothers and sisters, I do not claim to have attained it yet, nor have I become perfect, but I press on to grab hold of that for which Jesus first grabbed me on the road to Damascus. 
I have not attained it all yet. But brothers and sisters, I do one thing. I forget what has gone before me. And I press ahead to grab hold of the prize of the upward call of God that we received in Christ Jesus. A man who lost everything found more. I mentioned this last week and we see a pattern in New Testament writers. We see a distinct message from those who were there at Advent, there when Jesus came. There is a heart that permeates all of their testimonies. John says it this way, <clears throat> We've, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at, what we have touched, we proclaim him to you so that your joy too may also be complete. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you still do not see him today, you believe in him. And you receive a joy inexpressible and full of glory. And Paul, I count all things as loss when I compare it to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The commonality and the testimony of those who were at the first advent, who were there when Jesus first came. The common heart of the testimony of those who touched him, heard him, and were ministered directly by him. They spend far less time on talking about what's, when's, why's, and how's. Their testimony is clear that when we see him, when we know him, when we take his invitation to make our home in him, then every what, every why, every when, every how is swallowed up, covered like a blanket by the beauty of the who. It's wonderfully answered and covered in the who. Everything we need is in him and only in him. Only in him. I don't mind telling you that in my journey of 35 years of faith, there have been times when I've been greatly shaken. Illness of children, traveling in many different parts of the world and seeing hardship in Jakarta, in Haiti, in Ukraine, in the refugee camps, in the Syrian crisis, and now the ravages of Ukraine war. Personal health issues that sometimes keep following one right after another. And then holding a baby, the injustice of holding that child, that little girl who died because of the action of others. Grief and suffering in family and dear friends. During some of those times, questions and challenges start to come and they come hard and they come fast. Questions about God hearing, questions about God uh, acting, questions about how my prayers are answered, questions about if my prayers are answered, questions about the scriptures and some of the things that I don't understand even after 35 years. And I know I'm not the only one that these challenges come and the questions roll. 
In fact, just the other day, I met a man who came to service someone at my house. It's a gentle man, a kind man. And I started a question, a dialogue with him about faith. He told me he had lost a little girl at eight months old. And that had started that barrage of questions that took him down. And he said, I got questions about salvation. I got questions about hell. I got questions about what God is like in the Old Testament. I got questions about the injustice of the world. And he rolled off all of these questions to me. And he said at the end of it, I guess I just don't know anymore. And I shared with him what I've learned in my life. What I've learned from John, Peter, and Paul these weeks, and what I've learned from many of you as I've walked life with you. The un breakable truth, the unbreakable floor, the truth that stops all of that tumbling is Jesus. Every time I have tumbled, when those questions roll, when I arrive at Jesus, I start to rise again. That's why we focus so strongly on Jesus here. The advent of Jesus. Celebration, Jesus came. And he actually came to us, for us. Advent is the celebration that God loves us enough that he's the one who sent Jesus to us. And the fact that he loved us enough to send Jesus to us to cover all those questions says one thing. God is good. He is very good. Very, very good. And Jesus proves it. And if God is good, if God is good, then truly all is calm and all is bright. Let's stand and pray. As I finished up studying for this and prepping for this, um, there are going to be members of our prayer team in front always available for prayer. If there's anything in this message or anything going on in your life that you need prayer, please come forward for that prayer. But I felt a need also to open up the front just to give thanks. Think about what we've heard the last three weeks in the gift of the advent of Jesus. And I wanted to open up this space for both prayer but also to say, can we use this space if you just want to give forward and give thanks to Jesus on your own? Pray, kneel, do whatever you need to do. But this is a time for prayer and maybe even more so for thanksgiving. Lord, we thank you for all that you have shown us through your saints, through all of history and the testimony that it brings, the undeniable testimony, the testimony of lies we cannot explain away. And so we know you came. And just as it has changed everything about Paul, it can change everything about us. We give you thanks and praise.